1: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, it, it took four attempts, but finally we got to Plymouth and I
2: think it was worth it in the end, don't you? Yeah, we had a great time uh, and it was... Uh, fantastic for so many people to turn up, and we had people from Argyle themselves, um, as well as uh, a myriad of fans. And just to cheer you up, there was a Brighton fan there as well. There's always a Brighton fan. I think you hire them from Central Casting somewhere because they all look,
1: <laughs> they all look like they should be called Horatio. Yeah, one one chap had come down from Bolton, although he did say his mum lives in Plymouth. But that was lovely. I, I, a quick shout out. Everybody was exceptionally friendly, of course. Um, I, I too I, I didn't know they didn't like being called Plymouth Kieran I didn't know Oof. you had to call them all you, you, you got a bit a uh, bit, just... bit of a bit of a hard stare there uh, uh, yeah friendly friendly advice <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> about, what, about what the locals wanted to call us hello who's up <laughs> so Finley going, what is it, matter? They're, they're in Plymouth. Why can't you call them Plymouth, says Finley. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you're Your Amazon man's delivering late. Um, I just want to shout out to a couple of people. I don't normally do this, Kieran, because everyone came up to chat and I'd like to say hello to all of them. But uh, certainly to a young lad called Matt, uh, who was there with his dad, who are both blind football fans, who I will be getting in touch with to pick their brains about an interview we have coming up. And also, Kieran, I, I, I didn't get their names because... I'm um, yeah, Mr. Showbiz. It's all about me and my ego. I don't always ask, Kieran. But there was a, a woman at the front, I'm sure you would have seen, Kieran, with her son in a wheelchair. Yes. And um, she was writing stuff down during the, the first half of the show. And so I assumed she might have questions to put on our pile for the second half. And, and I went to ask. And it turns out she, was, she said she was making notes because it, it turns out she got into football because when her son was younger – yeah, uh, she she escorted him to games and his wheelchair. and She really got into football, and he loves the pod. So to be part of his life as a as a good mum, she is really getting into football finance as well. And she said she was just making notes in the first half, just to to for things to think about. And that her and her son, I got quite emotional as her and her son listened to the pod going to away games. And he he instructs her about some of the more complicated things we're talking about because it's all new to her. So, I might get someone to do that to me, Kieran, uh, when, <laughs> when stuff comes in. But I, I just thought that was—I I actually got—I was quite proud of us as a pod, Kieran, really. But I just thought it was a lovely, tender thing to find out that this woman has become a fan of the pod to take part in her son's life, which is great. And although the downside of the conversation is, I—I I heard some eye-watering things about the way some clubs treat their their fans in wheelchairs, Kieran. So we we need to revisit that topic I think but uh, thank you to everyone in Plymouth last night especially director Paul Byrne who was a very very gracious and funny guest and thank you to everyone who helped organize it and thank you to everyone who came and um, thank you uh, to me who had the bright idea got back to the hotel half 11 thought this is too early to go to bed so just for old time's sake I had a wander around Union Street and ended up in a late bar Talking football to three sailors from Glasgow. Uh, 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 That's a lovely nostalgic trip down memory lane. So um <clears throat> we have quite a lot of news stories, Kieran. One we of do. which one of which and, and seriously, people running football clubs and and people doing press releases, stop doing it three minutes after we do one show. <laughs> Literally three minutes after we finish recording our last show, the owners of Wigan Athletic, Kieran, it it seemed initially that so this was the best possible news that Wigan could, could hear. They seemed like they 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 had a, a deal in place for a new owner, and then suddenly, Kieran.
2: Yes. Well, we've always said <laughs> if that spoke, something That spoke seems, volumes, didn't it? It did. If something seems too good to be true, um then a, a healthy dose of scepticism might be applied. So uh, we all got very excited when, uh, as you rightly said, we'd recorded the show on Sunday evening at, uh, at eight o'clock, and we finished uh, around about nine-ish. Um, and we had said that uh, – you know, we're not describing them as rats leaving a sinking ship, but the the directors of Wigan had gone – We've got no confidence in the owner, uh, Taba, Tatal al-Hamed, because he's had a series of broken promises um, and you know, appears to be from the the fake side of the Sheikh uh, dynasty um, in terms of uh, his investment from Bahrain. And that there was a genuine concern about Wigan's ability to survive the summer if money wasn't going to come in. Then there was an announcement, and it was all a little bit vague and opaque. It's as if the, uh, the, the they've decided to put out a press release and say, "No, we're, we're not the bad guys after all." But uh, an agreement had been made um, with uh, with the intention of selling Wigan Athletic to somebody new, and people were going, "Blimey, O'Reilly, that's that's uh, that just seems a bit strange. You know, why would two directors have resigned earlier in the day hmm. when a deal was about to be announced?" And it then turns out that the person who is in theory behind all of this is friend of the podcast, Joe Johal, mm. who we first came into contact with with regards to a potential acquisition of another crisis club, which is Morecambe FC. He was initially involved uh, in terms of – I think he has put some money into to Morecambe Um but he's not yet passed the owners and directors test. And for people not familiar with uh, his company, which which is uh, Saab Capital, um, it doesn't seem to have a huge amount of money itself. He, uh, According to the information we can find out about him, he's a 22-year-old soft drinks millionaire from Solihull but doesn't actually appear to have many soft drinks sold. And if you take a look at the companies with which he's associated, they don't seem to have a lot of funding. So it just doesn't add up. Um, you know, the fact that the EFL haven't approved him to take over Morecambe raises red flags. The fact that he's now linked to Wigan. Well, how is the next wage bill going to be paid? I think that's that's the critical thing. Where is he getting money from? That nobody's heard of the soft drinks from which he is associated. Mm. So, um, you know, is, is this a case of new dawn fades or um, are, are we sort of stepping into another, uh, you know, frying pan and fire situation? And that's happened too often with Wigan. Dave Whelan, great owner, plays it straight down the middle, set a budget, stuck to a budget, everybody knew where they've st- they stood. And since then, there's been a slow and accelerating deterioration in terms of the, the integrity and, and the governance taking place at that football club.
1: Yes, you see, you, you started that analogy with a Joy Division song in New Dawn Fades, and I was expecting you to end with one. <laughs> but, but unless Frying Pan into Fire is a version of a Joy Division song I've not heard on a bootleg that only you've got. Two issues out of this, Kieran. Um, one of which we talked about last night in in Plymouth, the first one is that Morecombe fans may disagree, but Wigan are a demonstrably bigger club than Morecombe. Mm. um you know they've won, they've won the f a Cup in in recent memory, their fan base is bigger so it 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 seems odd that yeah he, uh, he was struggling to buy Morecombe, it seemed, and now suddenly he's putting in a bid for Wigan, which you assume mm. blows his bid for Morecombe out of the water i i guess um and secondly. And this was the issue I was particularly interested in. If, if it turned out that this young man from Solihull was, was on the line, was, was actually a, a, a multimillionaire with impeccable credentials, and he took over the club and he put up 25 million quid and said to the EFL, look, here's the money for the next 10 seasons, wages will be paid. Is there a chance then that the EFL would say, well, okay, the eight-point f- deduction was given to previous owners. Um, it's only fair that you don't have to deal with that.
2: Right. Let's deal with each of those issues in turn. Um, you're absolutely right. Wigan is a club with a bigger fan base, has got more property assets in terms of both uh, stadium and training facilities, um, and also has been in the championship as as recently as as, as a month ago, in effect. Um, so. It has more potential. You'd expect the price to be higher. I think the, uh, I think the hurdle as far as subject Joe Halley is concerned is not the money, uh, assuming that he does have it. It's the fact that the EFL, for whatever reason, are not willing to give him the, uh, the green light to go ahead with the deal. And if they're not, going on from what you've been saying, if they're not willing for him to take over Morecambe, there's no way they'd be willing for him to take over uh, Wigan Athletics. So Mm -hmm. so that is a concern. If he, however, can demonstrate um, that he does have the funds, and you you and I, we we have discussed offline where we believe his money is coming from. Um, Could that be part of a negotiating chip to reverse the points deduction that Wigan Athletic have had. Um, As far as 23-24 is concerned, remember, they've had two points deductions in in the the season we've just had, and they're effectively starting with two points deductions for 23-24. I think, personally, it's a long shot. And the reason for that is that if I was the owner of another club in League One, I'd be saying, well, we've set up a budget on the basis of Wigan starting the season on minus eight points. Um, we uh, we quite like the idea of yeah. Wigan Athletic starting the season on minus eight points because, let's be fairly, fairly brutal, everybody acts in self-interest and there is a high chance that Wigan will be relegated because they're starting behind the other clubs and effectively they are unable to recruit players for 23, 24 because if I was an agent, or even indeed if I was the player or the player's family, why join a football club that has failed to pay wages on five occasions in the last twelve months? So um, it it could, and certainly somebody. You know, we we did have this discussion uh, live at Plymouth, and uh, we did answer every single question. So for those people who are. Uh, have been waiting seven or eight months for us to answer a question on the Monday show, and th- there is a there, there is a workaround uh, to this. It's uh, you know uh, we will we will hope to have a few more dates uh, announced fairly soon, um, but I I think it's highly unlikely that the EFL would reverse that position, um, and they'd say you you either buy the club as it is in terms of inheriting both the assets and the liability in the form of the point deduction, or you, you you go and find something else to play with.
1: because <clears throat> so, That's another worry for Wigan fans, isn't it, Kieran, that people who have generally got the money to buy the club have to deal with the fact they're buying a club that's possibly going down again. Mm. So that's another level, isn't it? Um, just between you and I, Kieran, let's pretend we're offline again for a second. Uh, <laughs> we didn't answered quite every question last night as I didn't put two of them to you because um. they were about Moscow and the, ah. Bar- the Baroness was there. So I thought in the circumstances, especially every time we mentioned the word Baroness, she shouted from the back, my name is Gail.
2: I, th- <laughs> I
1: thought it was probably best that I didn't ask those questions. Um, filed That's very wise. Filed, <coughs> um, also filed, Kieran, in the drawer marked, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Charlton fans which again we we mentioned the idea that Charlton were a, a rich club for potential mm. investment and then just moments after we mentioned that it turns out that another old friend of the pod uh, has got himself involved there
2: <laughs> yes um, Charlton again has announced that they have agreed a deal in principle but again this will have to go through due process with the EFL and it's uh, it's Thomas Sandgard who I think it's fair to say has a fairly checkered, but brief history as owner of Charlton Athletic, um, and he's on our naughty step because he failed, and I, I, I bear a grudge as you know. Of course, he he, uh, he we we agreed with. With Thomas, that he could, yeah, you know, he'd come on the show, and we we're really looking forward to having a chat with him as a guest, as to, you know, the the, the rationale behind buying a football club and his his, his plans for child. And on both occasions, he just failed to turn up. So yep. yeah, that automatically, automatically gets uh, you know, red ink from me. Um, but uh, the, the agreement is with a company called SE Seven Partners, mm. and SE uh, Seven Partners, SE Seven Partners. Um, was was fronted by our very good friend Charlie Methven, <laughs> and um, Ch- Charlie, uh, for people who are unfamiliar with him, uh, he was part of the ownership group at Sunderland. He he featured um, quite prominently on the Sunderland Till I Die documentary. Um, he. Didn't necessarily come out of it spectacularly well, although he was. I felt I always felt that he was very um, upfront and and very candid uh, with his comments. Um, so it looks like he had this company called SE Seven Partners, and then sort of twenty four hours later, SE um, Seven Partners announced that it was now controlled by a company called Global Football Partners which is based in Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands. Mm. And who owns uh, SE7 Partners via Global Football Partners? Well, thanks to the somewhat opaque nature of uh, governance and tran- tra- uh, transparency in uh, in Grand Cayman, we don't know. Now, you know, clearly the EFL will insist that... Uh, That they are given uh, due access but again it makes you feel slightly uncomfortable I I went on to Google Maps and I managed to find the building uh, which now controls um, uh, Charlton Athletic in theory once you know assuming if this deal goes through and I think it's fair to say um, I'd quite like it as a holiday home but Mm. it, it didn't didn't set off what you'd call a particularly business style vibe. It was—it's right next to the beach, and there is a a very pleasant yacht uh, parked there. And, and it—I suspect it it might be a sort of a a, a brass plate uh, address rather than something from which uh, decisions are going to be made. At least, Kieran, it's some
1: consolation for Charlton fans—it that is on Grand Cayman. I mean, that indicates. It's not on one of the little Caymans; it's on the big one. <laughs> yes. So he must have some money. Uh, Charlie Methan, you mentioned too candid. Uh, I think that's an understatement. Somewhat when you're when you're overheard uh, explaining that most of your fans are too dim to work out the financial strategy of the club <laughs> that is being bought. I think that that's, that's way, goes way beyond candid, Kieran, doesn't it? Mm. In a way, mm. um, yes. Uh, and also, Charlie Metheran, I, I feel it's a warning to anyone who takes over at Charlton. Charlton have got some fans there who are forensic in their investigation of the finances of their club owners, and quite rightly so, given what's gone on in the recent past. So you need to make sure that everything is above board because you will get called out by the fans at Charlton,
2: Kieran, mm. won't you? Yep, yeah, yeah, the the Charlton dossier, if, if people yeah. ever have got a, a spare few minutes, is always worth a read. Um, it, it's, uh, it doesn't hold back. But I think it is, it, it, it is scrupulously objective uh, in terms of its uh, interrogation of the backgrounds and the, uh, uh, and the details surrounding uh, the series of owners of the club. And, and you can perhaps understand why um, there is so much scepticism uh, amongst the Charlton fan base.
1: Our third story, Kieran, is about another takeover, and this is one that's been coming and going like the tide on a Devon beach, Kieran.
2: <laughs> yes, um, this is Sheffield United. Again, yeah. And, yes, and it's an investigation by a uh, an organisation called Hindenburg Research into the Tingo Group which is owned by um, Dozy uh, Um And uh, I think it's fair to say um, that there's two things that I pick up from the Hindenburg research. A, they don't seem to like uh, the Tingo group. They, they, there's a number of pretty uh, scathing accusations about um, assets which don't appear to exist. Uh, about the owner uh, claiming to have a degree, but the awarding institution appears to have no record of him. And it it sets out a fairly damning um, assessment of both the uh, the company, the group, and and its owner. But um, Hindenburg Research also is active in stock markets, and it makes its money through a, a method called short selling. And the way that you make money in short selling is that you sell shares, which you don't own, and then you buy them back at a lower price. You, normally, when you sell shares, you've got you know 24, perhaps 48 hours before. Yeah, let's say, yeah, that I, I agree that I'm going to sell you um, some cheese today and i say i'll drop it round on friday and we agree a price but i don't actually own any cheese and i agree to sell you cheese at 5 pounds a kilo i'm hoping that the share that the price of cheese is going to fall and in in the in the 48 hours before i go round to your house to deliver it that i'm able to pick up some cheese for 4 pounds a kilo so I make money by assuming that prices are going to fall. Now, one way of getting prices to fall is to put out fairly damning, very explosive assessments of the company. So what Hindenburg research appeared to have done is to say, um, we're going to sell some shares in Tingo Group, um, but we don't actually own them yet. But by the time we come to settle the deal, which is, say, 48 hours, we hope that the share price of Tingo is going to dive. We will pick up the shares at a lower price, and we make the money from from this, this method called short selling. Um, so when, when I first saw the report, yeah, my reaction was, holy moly, this is uh, very, very damning. And now part of me is rowing back uh, because uh, Hindenburg Research has has not a degree of self-interest for the price of the Tingo Group to fall. Having said that, you know that there are you know there are libel laws and slander laws, and that they apply to to companies who have their their shares traded. So um, Hindenburg Research, if it if it has that it has published falsehoods, um, it is in trouble. And if it hasn't, um, then Tingo Group doesn't look like a, a very safe vehicle. And again, they've been connected with the potential purchase of Sheffield United for a long period of time. And the EFL have not yet approved the deal. And there's a reason why the EFL has not approved that deal. So uh,
1: there is cheese involved. I mean, it's, I'm trying to get my head. So you, you promised me some cheese.
2: Yeah, then we agree a price today. Right, and you're going to
1: deliver it on, on Friday, tomorrow. But yeah. in the meantime, you're going to tweet that cheese is rubbish. Yeah. And the hope that people go, yeah, he's right, I've, the cheese is overrated and the price of cheese goes down. That's then, right. Oh, okay,
2: that's right. All right. So, so I, I then pick up the cheese at a lower price and give it to you at the agreed price that we we, we set out today. But I'm still getting cheese. You're still getting cheese. Okay, Okay. fine. Um, you you get, You're getting cheese at... Today's price of five pounds a kilo. I don't actually own the cheese yet. I'm hoping that by saying rude things about cheese, I can buy it from four pounds a kilo tomorrow and make my money, buy for four, sell for five. Gotcha, okay. Uh, and I, I can't decide whether Hindenburg
1: research into the Tingo group sounds more like the Precy of a Doctor Who episode or <laughs> a, crypt, a cryptic crossword clue. Uh, three down, four letters. Um, Inter Milan, Kieran, have one of the most iconic kits Shirts, yeah. especially in in world football, basically, and they will be showing off that kit in the Champions League final, but it will have something different on the front.
2: Yes, um, Inter uh, Internazionale, as as we we I guess should call them. They uh, they it, did it, sign.
1: Kieran, I'll stop you. I had enough trouble with Plymouth fans last night. This really. <laughs> it's, 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 Inter's fine. Like, when yes. we when we do the live show in 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 Milan, we'll we'll cope with that then. Basically, Argyle fans. Sorry, I said Plymouth fans again. Didn't I, Argyle fans? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Inter had a deal with a uh, digital organisation called Digital Bits, um, and yeah, we we were we were we were bemoaning and mourning the loss of Pirelli on on, on the front of those uh, classic shirts. Um, but it was a slight problem in that Digital Bits didn't actually pay. The money that was due to Inter, and therefore Inter cancelled the deal. And for um, yeah, for a couple of months now, they've been playing with uh, nothing on the front of their shirts. Um, but they've signed a, a very very late deal with Paramount Plus. So um, it's it's a two uh, it's a two match deal. Uh, their final away match in uh, Serie A against Torino, they they wore their away kit. And they will be wearing um, in the Champions League final against Manchester City with that those iconic colours, um, this Paramount Plus uh, uh, logo on the front of their shirts. Now, there's also talk about Paramount Plus signing a back of shirt deal for season 23-24. So, so we await that. Um, we don't yet have back of shirt sponsors in the Premier League. Um, But uh, whether that will manifest itself, Mm -hmm. because we we know that the Premier League has agreed to say that it's not going to have any front of shirt gambling sponsors, but it will have sleeve sponsors who are gambling. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. well, that's leaving the back of the shirt, which doesn't appear to have uh, been mentioned yet by the Premier League. Um, so, so is this the way that things are going to go in the future? Yeah,
1: we're going to end up like France, Kieran, where every bit of the kit has got a sponsor's name on it. Do we know how much Paramount Plus have
2: paid for the for this two shirt deal? No, no, it's it's all I think been a bit rushed, and, and none of the journalists have managed to get numbers. But uh, Inter did. Get stung quite severely. I think their 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 deal for the season with Digital Bits was worth in the region of thirty to thirty five million euro. Um, so for a couple, yeah, they might have got a, a couple of million euro to given that uh, the, you know, we're not going to say the eyes of the world because I think that's that's an arrogant European thing to do. Hmm. But the Champions League final on Saturday is going to attract a huge audience. It's a strange thing for football
1: fans, Kieran, how some. Uh, brands, if you like, shirt sponsors have become iconic in a way. In, in the way that Palace fans will happily buy shirts with uh, TDK on old mm. ones or Virgin Atlantic, but won't touch ones with Man Bet x And like you say, that Pirelli. It's, yeah, I, I would much prefer shirts to be to have nothing on the front. But yeah, you're quite right. It, it seems like an international shirt should have that. And, and as we talked again last night. Yeah, you know, the the Ginsters relationship with Plymouth has become kind of iconic as well. Although it, it's it's a local Plymouth Foundation that's on the front of the shirt at the moment, but it's sponsored. That's itself is sponsored by Ginsters. So some brand relations with clubs work much better in fans' eyes than others, don't they? And presumably that's the the Holy Grail for somebody who's who's looking to sell the the front of their shirt, isn't it?
2: That's right. You're looking for something symbolic. You're, you're looking for. Um, it, it's a bit like when a a verb, be- uh, or oh, sorry, when oh. a brand becomes <clears> a verb. <throat> so we talk about hoovering. We talk mm. about googling, and every time we use that language, we're actually giving away um, a a brand name which has become so embedded into uh, modern thinking that uh, it, it is used as a means of a whole industry so yeah you, you can absolutely understand it and and let's face it it's, italian kits do look cool uh especially on italian people yeah you know, in my view yeah uh it's not quite the same for uh when, when you see them down at uh, at uh, eastbourne beach uh worn on uh blokes from uh blokes from north london who uh, have also got rolled up uh rolled up handkerchiefs on their head when, when's this happening, here in the 50s? What's, what's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> you, you've not been to Eastbourne recently. Uh, Eastbourne no, is yeah, the 50s.
1: Yeah, no, fair, <laughs> yeah, fair point. It's, it's just a very pleasing time travel image of a, uh, uh, an elderly English chap with a handkerchief on his head and his trousers rolled up and a brand new Inter Milan shirt with Paramount Plus written on the front. This next story, Kieran, I'm surprised hasn't been a bigger one than it than it has. Uh, that's I didn't put that very elegantly, but it's about UEFA and their fear of Premier League clubs dominating in Europe, and it's not one that's really made the headlines here. And it kind of should do, really, because it's it's a, a very
2: interesting, slightly worrying development. Yes, this story was broken by Martin Ziegler in the Times a few days ago. Um, other clubs in Europe are very jealous of the Premier League because mm. the Premier League has done some things spectacularly right they've they've made some very, very smart decisions. And one of the smartest decisions that's ever been made is to go into the international broadcast markets and to say, hi, we're the Premier League, we're the new kids on the block. This was happening in 1992. Um, we, we've got this new, uh, this new product. We've got live TV taking place over, you know, off- I remember when it started, it was sort of you know, two, three days spread over the weekend. Mm. Do, you, do you fancy trying it? And I tell you what, we're so confident in it. We're going to give it to you for nothing. And the the subscription channels in, you know, in Thailand, in Nigeria, in Australia, in, uh, you know, and so on, they said, yeah, yeah, this is fantastic. We'll, we'll, we'll have some of that. And the Premier League noticed um, the, the level of interest from viewers. So when those deals came up for renewal in three or four years' time, they said, uh, yeah, we're, we're willing to uh, re- renew that contract, but this time we want some money. And if you don't pay us what we want, we're going to go to your competitors who are more than happy to give us what we think the deal is worth. And that is why we are now in the position uh, for the first time in in history that the Premier League's international TV rights exceed the value of the domestic rights. In Germany, they're probably making um, around about... 10 to 15% of what the Premier League make from international rights. Mm. Premier League goes to 187 different countries. And this is given the Premier League this competitive advantage in terms of the money coming in. So under the new UEFA financial and sustainability rules, we have something called a soft salary cap. And the soft salary cap works as uh, wages are capped as a proportion of income. Now, there's Agents' fees and net transfer spend and various other bits and pieces that go into it, but the best way to think of it is it's a uh, you're, you're allowed to, put, to spend uh, initially ninety, then eighty, then seventy percent of your income on on player wages. The problem with such an approach is that it create well, it preserves the gaps in football. So. If we take, for example, Manchester City, who have income of £613 million, 70% of that allows them to spend £429 million on wages. If if we take Palace, Palace's income last season, £160 million, so therefore they can only pay wages of £112 million. So Mm. Manchester City have effectively, because they've got close on four times the amount of income, they've effectively got four times the amount that they can invest in wages. Let's say that a billionaire comes into Palace and says, I want to put a huge amount of money into the club. I want Palace to to become the new Newcastle. Under these rules, it makes it very difficult for that to be the case. Um, And that also applies on a European basis. And we've already seen, uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, one team in Milan. Well, Bournemouth outbid AC Milan earlier in this season Mm. for a player because Bournemouth are part of the Premier League. So what is now being discussed is what we refer to as a hard cap. And a hard cap simply works as this. You cannot spend more than, let's say, £200 million a year on wages. right? And that applies across the whole of Europe. And that means that those clubs at the elite end of the Premier League, they would have to plan to reduce their wage bills. That would mean that it would be more competitive for the clubs in the other big four leagues in Europe and potentially some of the the clubs in other countries as well. Um, Otherwise, the fear is that the Premier League will be dominant in Europe, although you know, we, we've seen uh, a resurgence of Italian football this year, as far as UEFA competitions are concerned. Um, we, you know, Real Madrid, have won the, the Champions League as it was five times in the last decade. I don't think the, the scare stories are as bad or as, as they're made out to be, but there is uh, a, a fear and a concern within Europe and within UEFA, and this is one way of addressing it. This is what happens in, in US franchise sports. So, if, if we go to the uh, if we go to the NFL, uh, the, the, the cap's £181 million pounds a year. And uh, if, if, you, if you exceed it, you get penalised, pricked pretty heavily. And this stops clubs winning the, uh, or in their case, franchise. It stops them winning uh, competitions year in, year out, which which isn't necessarily great uh, for uh, you know, those of us that want a bit of variety in in trophy winners. Uh,
1: What do you think the response of Premier League clubs would be to a hard cap, Kieran? Or is there any way they could respond all the while they remain in UEFA?
2: Well, there is something called the European Club Association, which does have, I think it has around about 200 members. But interestingly, only a handful or well, only a small number of its members can actually vote on decisions. So I think there could be some resistance from the European Club Association if, if this is imposed by UEFA. Um, certainly, the uh, the players unions are likely to, to push back on this because they would see this as a, 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 an attempt by the authorities to reduce their members' um, income. And then we come to the thorny issue of tax because – if you if you talk to players' representatives, um, you know, we're, we're always talking about such and such a player is coming in on X pounds per week. Um, talk to agents; they say, "I don't care what the gross salary is. My player is interested in netto, and I don't mean the discount uh, <laughs> green grosses. Um, when, when we're talking about netto, how much money is going into the player's bank account on a month by month basis?" The trouble is, in the UK, we've got the higher, a higher rate of tax of 45%, and then you've got national insurance issues on top. You go to Germany, you've got a different tax rate. You go to to you go to Luxembourg, you go to the Republic of Ireland. And because you've got uh, 55 uh, member countries in, in UEFA, you've got 55 different tax regimes and potentially 55 different tax rates. And in fact, even if you go to somewhere like Switzerland, um, the different cantons, Uh, Within Switzerland, they have individual tax rates, and it all gets uh, it all all gets very messy and very complicated. So, I think it would be difficult to enforce, and there's likely to be legal challenges from the players' unions. But I think it does show the strength of feeling and the concerns in relation to the Premier League's dominance that is perceived by other countries Mm. and clubs within Europe.
1: Now, Kieran, it was supposed to be over and done with in a week. But the Manchester United sales story drags on. And as my uncle Donnie would have said in Glasgow, getting rid of the Glazer siblings is a little bit like trying to unwrap a Randy octopus from a set of bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> because they are – which is 3 o'clock in the morning in a Glasgow bar. It's much funnier because you don't tend to look at the reality of how that's come about. There, why is it? Why <laughs> yes. is it? Well, how's the octopus got into Edinburgh in the first place, or has who's dropped their bagpipes in the in, but anyway, it, they're clinging on, Kieran, is what I'm saying.
2: Yes, um, so we, we have the two potential bidders for Manchester United, and the latest noises that are coming out, which are being strategically leaked by Sir Jim Ratcliffe's uh, uh PR people, is that. He's now willing to allow the six Glazer children to still have some shares Mm. so long as he gets up and and has 51%. 51% means that it allows you to appoint the board of directors. It allows you effectively to control the transfer budget. It allows you to to dictate how much money is going to be spent on the infrastructure and and borrowings and so on. Um, And if this is the case, I think it's fair to say it's going to go down very, very poorly yeah. uh, with the Manchester United fan base. Um, we've also uh, heard, and and this is coming out. You know, we we're recording on uh, on the evening of Wednesday the seventh. Um, we've also ho- heard that there has been a a final final bid from Sheikh Jassim, um, which is going to clear the debt of uh manchester united but oh, well. it's t- to buy a hundred percent of the shares and effectively uh, it will it will take the club private uh, again take it off the stock market um and, and uh, i i did see th- those those legendary words transfer war chest now huh. I, I i don't know what a war chest is
1: i i, I traditionally kieran it was a. Uh... Uh, a royal. It was a chest, it was a chest that had all the money you saved up as a king to go to war with, basically. Okay. Yeah.
2: Right. But he, he wasn't
1: looking to sign a left back. Uh, Henry VIII, when he bankrupted the country to go on yet another war with France, most certainly wasn't looking uh, to buy another left back. Now, I think I think I right. can say that with some certainty, Kieran. This this conversation has taken a severe handbrake turn. Um, I wasn't expecting to have to explain what a war chest is, but you know, oh, happen That's a pod for another day, Kieran. Kevin, yes. Kevin, there explains to a baffled Kieran Maguire what historical terms mean, <laughs> 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 and you might understand then how I feel about some of the financial
2: stories, Kieran. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, tremendous. Um, oh, how's the bee, so,
1: how's the bee situation, Kieran? Have you got rid of all your bees? Ah, oh well.
2: now, the the good news is um, that the the bee man. Um, who who has uh, has taken the queen? He's take, He took about two thousand bees on Sunday, wow. and we were very happy about that. Um, and he was uh, he was quite morose because he was he was telling us that you know uh, it, it's just it, you're, you're fortunate. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You, can, you can yeah. This is all down to Brexit because um, under the. Uh, under the, the rules that we now have, which are not part of the EU rules, we can now use insecticides which kill honeybees. Honeybees are good. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a very... very. But but that does mean that actually there's, there's now a spare hive. Um, but about 200 bees have returned oh. uh, because they've got the scent of the queen and they think that she's still there. And the tragic news is that they have sort of formed this... Uh, this area to protect her, which again is on in the side of our front wall, but um, they're going to die over the course of the next few days, and you can't scoop them up because they'll just fly back to where they think the queen is. So, uh, yeah, not ninety percent success, ten uh, percent uh, uh, bad b news coming up. I, I wish I hadn't raised the subject. Now, Kieran, I was trying to find a way of getting off
1: war chests. Um, let's get back. How much? If if shapes you seem, is offering to pay off Man United's debts by all the shares and provide a so shall we say a sum of money for transfers, Kieran? That strikes me as an enormous amount of money. How much would you would you think that's going to cost him?
2: Um, it, it's going to cost realistically an initial close on six billion plus whatever he's going to commit to the the transfer budget. Plus, there's the the elephant in the room, which is the uh, the substandard Old Trafford in yeah. terms of facilities available for fans. So, um, you know, if, if Spurs cost you know best part of one and a quarter, one and a half billion, then then you know a, a new uh, appropriate Old Trafford. Uh, with the capacity, you know, Manchester United can sell ninety thousand easily. Uh, the, the only constraint is going to be, uh, you know, physically getting to and from the ground, sort of transport things mm-hmm. and that, those issues. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to get change out of uh, out of two billion for a, uh, a, a proper uh, revamp of the stadium. So it, it could be a very significant sum of money, but but you are talking about an iconic brand in in world sport.
1: Yeah, and of course, the good news is for Sheikh Jassim is that. Man United are looking to sell Harry Maguire, so that'd be what? That'd be three million quid, you yes. guess, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, We talked about Inter and their shirt sponsor, and two domestic shirt sponsor stories, both of which are very interesting and in their own right. And the first one is Newcastle.
2: Yes, um, Newcastle's deal with Fun Eighty Eight uh, was due to expire in twenty twenty four uh bowl accounts fun eighty eight which is a chinese gambling company are paying around about seven to eight million pounds a year which is which is the going rate for a, a, a effectively a white label uh, gambling sponsor um Newcastle, uh, I think, are going to announce, if the stories are true, a deal with a Middle Eastern-based company, um, uh, the Cellar Group, which is a Saudi events company, and that's going to be somewhere in the region of three times the amount. It's going to be £25 million a year. Um, that will have to go to the Fair Value Committee um, that's been set up by the Premier League to try to stop clubs from manipulating their finances by having friendly sponsors – but with Newcastle A finishing third in the Premier League, appearing more often on television as a result of that, and qualifying for the Champions League next season, I think they'll be in a fairly strong position to defend a twenty-five million pound a year deal. Um, you know, there'd have to be evidence of step downs if they subsequently don't qualify for the Champions League. But uh, uh, the commercial income of Newcastle flatlined throughout the ownership period of of Mike Ashley, and clearly it's one area that the club is is both keen and able to address. Um, because Mike Ashley himself became a, a toxic element as far as relationships between sponsors and the club was concerned because they knew that there would be boycotts, they knew that there would be negative publicity put out by the Newcastle fan base if if the, uh, if the sponsors got involved with Mike Ashley's uh, Newcastle.
1: It, it's been quite a handy week, Kieran, for people like Amnesty International and other opponents of the Saudi regime who are accusing them of sports-washing on a huge scale with Saudi not only buying the Saudi government, not only buying the top four clubs in the country, but essentially buying golf as well.
2: Yes, that, that's an absolutely staggering uh, decision. And I appreciate that you know, this isn't a golf show. Mm. Um, but uh, as, as somebody um, that we we mutually know in in the world of golf, uh, of broadcasting said um you know that they're not trying to buy the branches off the tree um they've just gone and bought the whole tree mm. um and, and uh, you know you, you had these two competing bodies um yeah that that that's very weird. and as for PIF buying for football clubs in Saudi Arabia well clearly they've got the funds to do so you know the so the financial perspective is not an issue but that does raise the thorny concern of well, how competitive is the game going to be? Because if I own four football clubs in the same league, and I think there's only twelve teams in the league anyway, um, there is the opportunity to uh, perhaps reduce competitive tensions in certain matches. Uh, but you know, if, if you're if you're trying to get into, for example, the FIFA World Club Championship, and you need to finish in the top two in Saudi to to go into the playoffs for the MENA uh, area then you know those results c- can be arranged by a little bit of soft pressure from the owner so uh, I, it it looks it, it looks uncomfortable um, the ability of these clubs to recruit players and pay them transformative amounts of money oh, for, wow. for young men that are already rich you know, i think uh, uh, kante who is one of, you know, one of the players? I think it's difficult not to love. Uh, he's going to be paid a hundred million dollars a year if he accepts the contract, and you you can't really say to the players well, you shouldn't take it because it, it's it's perfectly legal to do so, and it's uh, an incredible amount of money. And the chances are it won't be very much tax paid on that either. But, but it, it's all very reminiscent, Kieran, back in the in,
1: in the early nineties when BSB and Sky were in a, a battle to see who would become the dominant uh, satellite station. Both of them were offering stupid amounts of money to mid-level comedians to do mid-level comedian stuff. And they were two of the best years we we had. And uh, not that long ago, we had China becoming the the logical place for 29, 30-year-old European footballers to go. And now we're I mean, credible rumours that Wilf zahar has been offered £275,000 a week to go and play out there I mean, it's i mean it's obviously sustainable financially wise but it does it does remind you of those those heady days of china offering everybody in the world more money than they've ever seen isn't it
2: yes and we've seen it in cricket with the ipl yeah indeed. um yeah. you know and but you know the potential death of one day cricket in this country on the back of that um you can expect to see it potentially in in other sports Um, and and you and I are also old enough to remember Kerry Packer indeed and and pyjama cricket (laughs) and and the the reaction of the establishment um, when when that took place where where somebody came along and cricketers were were very poorly paid you know it was a uh, it it was a you know doff your cap type of existence but the money they were on uh, was was ridiculously low and along comes somebody and, and disrupts the whole market
1: The other shirt sponsor story, Kieran, in English football is a club operating at, uh, shall we say, financial levels, several divisions below that of Newcastle, and that's Coventry.
2: Yes. um, uh, Doug King, the, the new owner of Coventry, has said... Um, the, the deal with Boyle Sports, who uh, again, a gambling company, um, that's, that's due to end and he doesn't want to new. Uh, even though the EFL, the Skybet Championship in which Coventry are competing, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is, is itself sponsored by a gambling entity and, and the EFL have said, yeah, we're we're not going to follow the, the Premier League. Uh, and in addition to that, um, betting kiosks in the stadium are going to be removed as well. And uh, he says he doesn't want to put temptation. If anybody that, that has had a family member or a friend or a loved one who has a gambling addiction, it's... It is very difficult, and uh, I think you've got to give Doug King uh, a, a lot of credit. He, he does appear to be very genuine um, in, in wanting, not to reduce people's enjoyment. You know, we've, we've, we've said on many occasions that you know, we, we both have placed wages on football matches, um, but to create an environment where um, people who have suffered on the wrong side of the gambling industry don't feel as much of the constant pressure um, as as would otherwise be the case. Yeah, we, we talk about this every week here, and so I don't want to discuss
1: it further. But I, I will say one thing, and this it, this came up last night because we had a question from one of our uh, audience members in Plymouth, which is uh, which companies are wealthy enough to replace betting sponsors? So there's a risk involved in Doug King doing that, but it's it's entirely up to him. And I think a lot of Coventry fans will be very happy with what he's done. Uh, sad news for
2: Reading's women's team, Kieran. Yes, and, and this is always a potential problem um, following relegation. Now, now Reading have had a double whammy this season mm. in the sense that the men's team has been relegated from the Championship to the... Um, to, to League One, and that means that their broadcast income will reduce by around about seventy-five to eighty percent. They were already losing large sums of money. They were already playing you know, close to double their income in the form of wages in the Championship. The women's team was also relegated from the WSL to the Championship. Um, And uh, in the WSL, uh, you get 75% of the the overall TV money, 25% in the championship. And as a result of this, Reading have said, we are no longer willing to run a professional women's team in the championship. Now, the average salary in the WSL is only £27,000 a week, sorry, £27,000 a year. So apologies for that, um, and uh, it's it's less than that in the championship, and the fact that they can't even match those wages, or they don't plan to, um, is is a is a concern. And I think the the broader issue of the funding and the sustainability of the women's game, um, when there is a very close relationship to the men's team. Um, When the men's team is relegated, and this could be from the Premier League to the Championship or the Championship to to League One, um, there's always a knock-on effect. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that the women's teams of Southampton, Leeds and Leicester are are at risk, Um, but uh, I I know for at least one of those clubs, I know Southampton have been very progressive, Um, but it, it does show that there is a degree of dependency upon the men's team maintaining its position and if it loses that position and gets relegated, there are ramifications not just for jobs but also for, uh, in the back office, but also for um, issues such as academies and women's teams as well.
1: Well, it also indicates, Kieran, the, the actual reality of the women's game at the moment because if you were to ask most football fans what they thought of the women's game they would say well it's flourishing you know World Cup mm. games are going to be sold out Wembley's sold out every time the Lionesses play we're seeing great crowds in the Women's Premier League uh, in the Women's Super League I beg your pardon. but at the the coal phase th- th- that grassroots level and above th- th- it's really struggling Kieran
2: yes um and trying to come up with a long term strategy for the women's game because it, it is it's a bit like a start up business and, and you know, you, you, it does come up with a, a series of different hurdles. And I think the sadly the worst thing that happens is that because the men's game, especially at Premier League level, is flourishing so much, people are automatically comparing. Yeah. The women's game to the men's yeah, game yeah, yeah. but I think the women's game is, is more akin to something such as rugby league or, yep. or county cricket in the sense that it's fighting for eyeballs and it's fighting for broadcasting slots against the Premier League which is this this behemoth which is you know dominating uh, the sporting la- landscape so much it,
1: it's interesting you mentioned rugby league I was speaking to Claire Boulding recently for another project and she she says that the constant comparisons between women's football and men's football are not helpful. And, and mm. when it comes to the broadcasting deal for women, for example, she said, "Don't compare it to the men's broadcasting deal because nothing in the world of sport will ever come close to that. Compare it to the men's deal for broadcasting rugby league or rugby union, and when you do that, it's it's a comparatively healthy comparison." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't believe I said comparatively in comparison in the same sense Kieran. I need to stop beating myself up about these things. K- Kieran, it's, it's rare that we get to get – we've got a couple of stories left. They're not massive stories, but this one, I think, in its own way, is as big a story as we've been able to announce recently, and it's unremittingly, I hope, good news.
2: Yes, this is in respect of uh, Hensford Town, Um, there was an announcement about a month ago that the the club was not going to be able to play football um, in 23, 24. Um, It was going to have to withdraw from the the Northern Premier League. It's got the fourth highest attendances in that, you know, averages around about 500. You know, it's, we've always said part of the community gives people a purpose, gets people out of the house, you know, gets you walking, gets you talking. There's so much, so many positives about football and, the, the owner yeah, you know, the club had been losing money the loaner said i can't afford to fund it or well, i'm not going to fund it but um you know and there were directors loans outstanding for around about 2 million pounds looking at the accounts um somebody has come forward see i think he is the former vice chairman um to be to be fair he said i have made mistakes i think he's had a perhaps a prickly prickly relationship with some of the fans historically but let's let's put that all to one side let's work for the common good um, and yeah, it, it's 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 good news. You know, and you know, look, look forward to them ideally competing mm. in the in that league next year, and and hope they go from strength to strength.
1: Yeah, and and if the deal is done, it would be lovely to talk to somebody from Hensford Town as well, mm. Kieran. I, I rarely say this to you, but I've, I've got a bone to pick with you, Kieran. Oh, I really. Yeah, in, in times gone by, you've said to me that Palace are probably worth about two hundred fifty, two hundred sixty million quid. So that's what I tell. Well, in the Pawson's Arms, people will sidle up to me and go, you know a bit about this football finance stuff. And I go, no, I don't. I read out the questions. Uh, but <laughs> they, 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 they would then say, well, what does your mate Kieran think Palace is worth? And I'll go 250, 260. Lo and behold, mm. all the WhatsApp groups, social media, etc., Palace fans this week, because Forbes would go at 680 million quid. They reckon we're worth. What's going on, Kieran?
2: Yes, um, Forbes have published their twenty most valuable. Uh, I think the thirty most valuable football clubs. Now, sorry, can we, start, perhaps,
1: perhaps we should explain who Forbes are to some
2: people. Well, well Forbes, Forbes magazine. Forbes is the magazine for extremely wealthy individuals. Ah, you know, okay, right. it, it looks at the lifestyles. Lifestyles of the rich and the famous, right. and uh, huh. and communicates those, um, and it's very aspirational. and It talks to you know, millionaires and billionaires and, and big corporations and so on, um, and and it, you know, American sport uh, is is associated with a lot of wealth. But it, but Forbes has come up with what it considers to be the the top thirty most valuable uh, football clubs on the planet. Now, three of the clubs in the top twenty. Are from Major League Soccer, and uh-huh. I go. Well, yeah, you know, I, I, I've been to some MLS games. I've had great fun attending MLS games, but if you take a look at the most valuable um, uh, US cut club, which is uh, LAFC, their revenue is around about eighty million pounds. Um, that's that's just beyond what Fulham made in the Championship. Mm. Oh, it's it's considerably less than all of the, every club in the Premier League. It's less than Celtic and Rangers made, uh, I think last season in the SPFL and you know, Rangers and Celtic and, uh, you know, Bournemouth and Brighton, but you know, they're not in the top 20 clubs. So, so why are uh, LAFC and uh, LA Galaxy and so on? So that seemed a bit strange. And then this figure came out in, in respect of Palace and, um, intuitively looked wrong. And, th- and this isn't me being critical of Palace. You know, I've, I've said you know, I admire Palace for A, for getting to the Premier League and B, having a strategy where they've maintained their position in the Premier League and they should be applauded for that. But um, Palace have been valued considerably more than Newcastle United. Mm. Now, Newcastle United have a 52,000 capacity stadium palaces is 25,000 Newcastle United are playing in the Champions League next season Palace are playing in the Premier League only um so so where did they get these figures from um I I have given valuations historically to Forbes of, of one <laughs> or two clubs um and I always use a a consistent method I think the issue here is is that Forbes actually talk to probably you know, fifteen to twenty different people in the industry who'd use different methodologies to value football clubs. And a journalist from Forbes would say, can you give me figures for Crystal Palace and Fulham? Can you give me figures for Manchester United and Newcastle? And if, and if the methods are different and there are huge uh, differences in assumptions and assumptions uh, and some are forward-looking and some are historic-looking, uh, valuing a football club is not a science. It's not even art. It's glorified guesswork mm. supported by very intense people who are able to shout out words like amortization and discounted cash flows (laughs) very, very confidently. But the numbers, I I don't want to say that they're ultimately a load of old bollocks, but they are. Um, So um, I can understand, Newcastle fans were were very upset about this. And I'm just saying, just don't take the numbers too seriously. Um, Ultimately, a football club is is a trophy asset it's like buying a work of art how much are you willing to pay for an individual bank seat? that that varies to dep- upon you know what you think of it and you know what other people think it's worth so yeah i, I did this isn't a christmas palace i don't think they're worth 686 million pounds uh,
1: well two things kieran i'll tell you how much i'm prepared to pay for a bank seat, 30 quid not a fan um right the frustrating thing is kieran I was halfway to crowdfunding two hundred and forty million quid to buy Palace. I don't. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think they're going to take the extra four hundred million. Is going to take a lot of raising, Kieran. It's, it's just. Yes. I, it's just knocked me a little bit, Kieran. That's all. It's really. We were, yes. we were halfway there. I mean, uh, obviously, guy producer guy turned me down with a thirty million quid I asked him for. But, uh, it's, he reads Forbes, doesn't he? I imagine. I imagine producer. Yes, he, he writes it. <laughs> two more stories to go, Kieran, and. Uh, one of them is better than the other. We've we've spoken a lot about the Football Association of Ireland in the three years plus that we've been doing the pod, very rarely in a positive fashion. But for once, we can rectify that.
2: Um,
1: oh yes, we
2: can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sorry. Well, it, it also involves Mike Ashley. So eh? what? It, okay. Yes, uh, the the FAI um, borrowed money. Um, from Sports Direct, from Mike Ashley's Sports Direct, Uh, and it was around about 6.5 million euro. I think it's fair to say that the FAI were not run on a particularly sustainable basis Mm. by John Delaney. Um, And uh, I've always said, you know, read the book Champagne Football. If you want to find out a bit more about Mr. Delaney, he's he's quite a sensitive soul. So the fact that this book managed to get through the lawyers was an achievement in itself. But there, there was a substantial amount due. Sports Direct, when when a, a deal collapsed, demanded all of its money back. Uh, the FAI then said, we're going to be paying back at €100,000 a month. And it has been doing so. Um, but it looks... As if now there's a new agreement between Sports Direct and the the FAI, which means effectively they they won't have to be doing any repayments and and Sports Direct are making a contribution towards Irish football. But Until you see the small print, um, I'm always very, very cautious. Um, Mike Ashley is a very, very smart businessman, regardless of what you might think of him um, uh, in in some other aspects of his life. Um, But he is is very good at getting very, very good deals for himself.
1: With hindsight, Kieran, perhaps we should have finished with the Hensford story because I don't like finishing on a downbeat note. But for Partick Thistle fans, it is very much a downbeat note.
2: Yes, um, yeah, you know, we've had uh, the Jags Foundation on the show. Um, there clearly was a a poor relationship between the board and the the fan base, um, you know, and, and I think it was it was Colin Weir who was the successful uh, fan who who won the lottery, who effectively bequeathed some money to Partick Thistle. Mm. Um, Partick Thistle is is losing money. It would have lost a lot more money had it had it not reached the the, the, the playoffs um, for for promotion and relegation, and also had it not had a a cup match against Rangers. Um, but the board are saying that we're losing money. Um, we're handing across the club to the Jags Foundation and effectively giving them a hospital pass. And the Jags Foundation are saying, well, you know. We, we think we should have been uh, working more uh, closely, but there's there's not been a good relationship between the board and the foundation. Um, it is now trying to to crowdfund. Uh, I've seen its tweets that have gone out uh, in fact, during during the recording of the show saying, well, yeah, the good news is that more people are wanting to join the foundation. Uh, they realise that we are on the side of the angels. That can't necessarily be said about the uh, some of the other people connected to the club. So yeah, it, it's messy. It, it's sad. Um, you know, I think they're going to have to have a significant reduction in budgets, um, which which is a shame for the forthcoming season because you know, we all know what it's like at football fans. You come to the end of the season, you park it, you have a moan for a few days and then you start thinking, when are the fixtures out? Who are we going to be signing? And we we've got a very good way as football fans as, as putting things behind us. But the last thing you want to know that, that next year is going to be tough as well. Do you know?
1: Kevin, it seems odd not to end a pod by trying to flog the last two tickets at Plymouth, like we have been doing <laughs> <laughs> for the past three months. But we will be uh, in a situation in a week or two, hopefully maybe a bit longer than that, to to announce another tranche of uh, mm. live tour dates. We'll certainly be going to Ireland, hopefully Jersey. That's certainly in the northwest of England and Scotland. So we'll be back to you soon with some news about that. We've got some. Other news, which I think has been leaked on social media about a Price of Football project, which will be available shortly. In the meantime, thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that would be very kind. And you can go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball to do so. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at dot com. I'm off to watch. Uh, Says like I'm off to Istanbul to watch West Ham in the what's it called conference final, but I'm not. I'm off to the room next door, um, uh, I, and I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Yeah, I,
2: I won't be watching the football because I'm, I'm peering on the moral maze <laughs> I didn't, on Radio 4. I didn't want to tell people that. as I thought <laughs> I thought they would think I was making it up. But no. <laughs> yes, yeah, which, which is bizarre. So it'll be the first time I've ever broadcast from my, my, my front room wearing a dinner jacket because it's Radio 4 after all. Again. Even I have to have some form of standards.
1: Kevin, I'll take you back to the uh, earlier discussion about people sitting on beaches with knotted handkerchiefs. They're not quite dinner jackets. I, I just think how proud would Uncle Terry be? To go no. Imagine the moral maze that Uncle Terry negotiated <laughs> throughout his entire life.
2: <laughs> yeah, let me cap all right. Yeah. <laughs> But, but thank you, thank you, everybody who has supported the show. Thank you for everybody who came to see us and, and the patience you showed uh, in terms of Plymouth. It, there were circumstances beyond our control, beyond the club's control, and so on. Uh, and we had a great time. Um, there's another way that you can support the show, and, and that's to give us a review using your app. We, we don't know how it quite worked. It's something. You know, we 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 have meetings with producer guy, and he and he shows us charts and he points at things and he shouts algorithms at us, but. Um, you, you can write whatever you want. You could even say you would rather have the show presented by Adam of Adam and the Ants and Scrappy-Doo of Scooby-Doo.
1: Ooh, they're both quite well-dressed, aren't they? Oh, no, actually, Scrappy doesn't wear much. Do. Um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 lo- I loved Adam and the Ants. The two yeah. them. Um, He did Buzzcocks once. He was absolutely charming. But he's... Tiny. Oh, I'm really, I'm really pleased to see that. Oh, I hear he's a that. tiny little fella. It's really rather uh, taken aback by... In fact, I, in, a, in a lineup, lineup, I think mean, Scrappy might come out as taller than he is. <laughs> uh, but he was generally nice. I mean, for a man who's had his terrible... He's had challenges. He's had his terrible fair share of mental challenges, mm. but he was mm. um, a remarkable man. And I think one of the most underrated uh, uh, musical performers of the 80s, actually. And yeah, will, yeah, will that, absolutely. Stick that in your moral maze.
2: <laughs> Bye everyone. Fatily qua Bye. Bye. some football.